This is Cultivating Indigenous Voices, hosted and produced by Tina Andrew, featuring special guest Mele Martinez. I met Mele in 2018 through her husband, Jason, who at the time also had a podcast of his own called Between the Lines. I was a guest on Jason's podcast. It was then I met his beautiful small family. Not long after that, we were invited back to their home for a delicious dinner. Melanie, or Mele, is a writer, storyteller, mother, flamenco dancer, and an educator. Welcome, Mele, to the show. Hello, Tina. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm from Tucson, and uh, my dad was also born here in Tucson. The rest of my family comes from mostly Mexico or uh, somewhere in the southwest, mostly in the Sonoran Desert, but also from Baja California. I grew up here in Tucson in the West Foothill Mountains. My dad actually built our little house on a hill up there, and I have a little brother Uh, He's not little anymore. (laughs) And um, yeah, the four of us, my mom, dad, and my brother and I grew up, you know, mostly in Tucson and enjoying all of the stuff that comes with having a lot of family in the same place where where you grow up. Um, We had a lot of family gatherings, a lot of uh, opportunities for me to spend a lot of time with both sets of my grandparents, who even though they not all of them were born here in Tucson, they did all uh, spend most of their lives here in Tucson. And so I got to I got to kind of live with both of them. My dad's parents were living in a small home in Menlo Park, Barrio Menlo. And so I spent a lot of my early days in Barrio Menlo, which was amazing. My grandmother had a beautiful little garden in her backyard, the kind of garden that's like super impressive when you live in Tucson, you know. She always had birds uh, visiting her garden, and, and we just spent a lot of time there and, you know, in this tiny, tiny little patch of dirt in Barrio Menlo. Um, On the east side of town, I would usually spend time there during the school year. I even had my own bedroom at my grandmother's house on the east side of town. I kind of had two lives, one on the east side and one on the west side. And I went to the east side a lot because my brother and I both attended Catholic school on the east side of town. Our Mother of Sorrows Church is where we went um, from kindergarten through eighth grade. And yeah, that was a very different existence growing up over there. It felt very different than than my life on, on the other side of town. I made a lot of really important friendships there. It was really nice, closed, safe community in that church. And, you know, just growing up with the same people for eight years makes you really close to them. Even if they're not people that you continue to know, you know, there's a lot of folks there that helped raise me in a lot of ways. And so I would spend a lot of time with my grandparents on the east side of town, too. They were very different. Both of them grew up um, in uh, different parts of California. Um, My grandmother was born in Baja, California, and then spent most of her time in uh, Mexicali and Calexico. And then my grandfather was actually born in the L.A. area uh, and then went back to Mexico for many years and then came back. Lots of going back and forth across the border. And um, he actually lived to be almost 102. And so I got to have him for a really long time. <laughs> and he was he was amazing. He was awesome. So, yeah, I was really raised by all four of those people and, you know, grew up a lot in downtown Tucson as well because my family had a business in downtown Tucson that I worked there. And um, my brother and I both worked there. And then I eventually went to University of Arizona and was really searching for what I wanted to be. Part of me very much wanted to be a dancer from a young age. I had been taking dance classes since I was three years old. 
And even though that was kind of my major goal, <laughs> a lot of times I, I just felt like I needed to do schooling as well because it had been ingrained in me to, to get that education and to see where it could take me. My mom in particular, I think, really wanted my brother and I to get a university experience, whether it be here in Tucson or somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, I went to the University of Arizona. Those were some interesting four years. <laughs> and the way I got through it was to select a major that actually my parents didn't really approve of, I think. It was creative writing, which, of course, every, you know, first-gen family is like, wait, what? You're going to creative writing? You're supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer or a chemist or something that's going to pay the bills. Um, <laughs> yeah. And creative writing doesn't exactly look like that from the outside, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was the way that I could stay engaged. I knew that I could finish if I could do something like creative writing. And it was amazing, especially the last couple of years of, of that educational experience, being able to write about things that were important to me and to imagine things, you know, in a new way um, that was legitimized in academia. That was huge. And it really made a, a big difference in my life. I actually didn't consider myself much of a literature person or English person. I didn't read, actually, as a kid growing up. I could, you know, maybe name like three or four books that I read between the ages of six and 18. You know, there's just very little reading that I actually did. Um, as a child of the 80s, I did a lot of watching, <laughs> a whole lot of watching um, and observing really for sure my whole life and looking at all kinds of other storytelling, but not necessarily written in book storytelling. Um, so when I got to school, when I got to college, I should say, I started thinking about that a little bit more and was finally able to get a few books that felt more accessible to me, felt like they were reflecting some of my story. But there were a few, there were, you know, few and far between. But when I finally did get them, I felt like I had a, I had a reason to consider being a writer myself. And so I finished my undergrad, and as soon as I was done with that, I left Tucson, <laughs> which had been my plan all along, <laughs> and I went, didn't go far. I only went to Albuquerque. <laughs> you just crossed the state line. <laughs> exactly. I crossed, and I went to a town that wasn't much different. <laughs> yeah, very similar. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but one thing that Albuquerque had was um, a new American flamenco repertory company, uh, a dance company that was unique, that was the only one of its kind, really, in this part of the almost the Western Hemisphere at that time, there was very few companies that were um, flamenco based companies. And flamenco was something that I had started to study by the time I was 15. So I did a lot of other cultural forms of dance, Mexican folklorico, especially um, some Spanish classical dancing training in very limited ways, because there wasn't a whole lot of resources here in Tucson to be able to study those things. But the people who were doing it were doing it with all their heart. And, and I studied with them. And so then going to Albuquerque was my opportunity to audition, and I got into that company. And that was an amazing, amazing, like, second college for me. <laughs> it was a beautiful time for me, for sure. It was difficult. It was, you know, a time to, like, do a lot of soul searching and growing up um, because I was just in my early 20s when I got there. And of course, I fell in love with yeah. a dancer. <laughs> and then we got married, we had a baby, and then suddenly we were a family flamenco style, <laughs> which was cool because there was actually a lot of families there. And in fact, the people who were, um, you know, who were really running all of the major flamenco work that was happening in Albuquerque at the time, they were a family. Mm -hmm. So we had a model of how, you know, how to think about doing that 
in more than just this, you know, rogue individual artist, yeah. you know, but thinking of it more as a, as how it can be something that grows into, into family and community. We had a wonderful time there in Albuquerque. My husband, Jason, and I um, were part of the company for six years and did a lot of training with uh, Spanish artists and American artists. And we really grew as artists ourselves in that time. And then after my daughter was a couple years old, we decided to come back to Tucson and tried to do flamenco here, which was really hard. <laughs> we didn't yeah. have that same kind of uh, support system. We didn't have uh, the same, well, number one in flamenco, you have to have a lot of musicians, you know, to be able to do work um, you know, flamenco artists typically use live musicians, and we didn't really have that kind of base either. So it was it was a challenge, but we did um, try and do some company work here. We did have a studio where we taught for a number of years, and we ended up having the opportunity to begin a, an annual flamenco festival here in Tucson, where we invited a lot of our friends from other places to join in and kind of present these these new artists in Tucson amazing artists, actually, and many of them very, very close friends. And so we did that for a number of years. Um, and actually, we're doing it pretty regularly all the way through to the pandemic. Um, and at, I think basically the first month of the pandemic, I kind of knew everything was was gone. In some ways, everything was going to be gone. So we didn't have a place to perform or to teach at that point, which most of the world didn't have either. You know, uh, flamenco was kind of struggling all over the planet. So that kind of put a dent in, in my artistic life in that way. I haven't been dancing since uh, February 2020. Really haven't danced at all since that time. So a big loss, a big loss. Not one that everyone experienced. A lot of people were able to go back. But for whatever reason, I haven't um, gone back to the stage in that way. Yeah. But maybe... You know, there's still opportunities for that, but uh, a lot of things have changed. Mm -hmm. And um, my body's changed, I've gotten older. <laughs> and so I think about flamenco maybe in a new way now, as mm -hmm. opposed to just the movement part of it. Yeah, and and for those who are not familiar with flamenco dancing, it's, a, it's a, like an art form of incorporating poetry, singing, dance, hand clapping, Finger snapping, foot stomping. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. You got all the parts. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tradition that was born in some ways, but more like pieced together, I would say, mm -hmm. in uh, southern Spain and Andalusia. And it's a there's a huge influence of many different cultures in that place. It's very similar to our borderlands here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like an epicenter of many different cultures coming together, just like we have here. Uh, in Tucson and in Sonora. And so that tradition began from mostly uh, a Gitano influence, a gypsy influence, mm -hmm. but it also incorporates a bunch of other cultural styles, musics, music ideas, um, and it grew and developed. And now it's a super contemporary artistic form, both in music and in dance. Uh, a lot of people think of it as archaic or like an old kind of thing. And it, there are parts of it that are very ancient, certainly. But it, it is also a very contemporary art form uh, with all kinds of innovations. Just, I mean, imagine all the innovations that happen in other forms. It's the same in flamenco. Um, I'm sure there's AI in flamenco at some point. I don't know how. But there's just a lot of artists doing all kinds of amazing <laughs> new 
ideas mm -hmm. uh, in an ancient form. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. The, and typically, the language of the poetry or the singing in flamenco is in Spanish. Although there's there's some mix there too. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, there's some mix with um, other forms of language. The movement is its own form of language. Luckily for us, flamenco is very globalized now. It's even though it's centered in Spain. Um, there's artists all over the world doing it. And so mm -hmm. that movement becomes kind of like a shared language between many, many different kinds of people all over the place. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that part of your personal life, because I'm sure in academia, that world can get very, very overwhelming with a lot of, you know, talking and, and speaking and, and, and instructing. Uh, but to hear who you are as an individual, as a person, as a, as a family person, it's always good to hear those types of stories as well, because you I feel like you do so much here in the community, in the city of Tucson. You've given back in many ways. It's always good to see another side or hear another side of an individual story. So thank you for sharing that part. And when we get a little bit more into that individual family story of yours. So prior to this interview, I found that you are currently working on a memoir, which I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about that. What is the memoir about? What's it called? How long have you been working on it? And then we can maybe uh, hear you read an excerpt from that memoir. Okay. So uh, the book that I've been writing for many, many years now is called The Molino. And it is uh, something that began when I was in my undergrad program, actually, in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona. Um, the very first essay I wrote um, was titled to Molino, and it was essentially a description of the place that I was going every single day before I came to class. <laughs> it was a food store called El Rapido in the Presidio neighborhood of downtown Tucson. Um, sometimes I use the word restaurant and I forget that El Rapido was never a restaurant. <laughs> if you ever went there, you would see that um, there was a line usually out the door because there was very little room inside. <laughs> it was a very small space. There was no table or chairs. Um, it was a lunch counter, essentially. And before it was a lunch counter, it was mostly uh, a tamaleria or a tortilleria, a place where people would go almost like a market to go and buy um, their supplies. They would even buy masa there. Uh, corn masa in order to make their own tamales. Um, so the place itself is on the corner of Washington and Meyer. It's a really uh, important historical place in Tucson because it's uh, Washington Street is essentially where the Presidio Wall used to be. And before the Presidio was there, there was a village there. And so it's a, it's an old and important place. I knew none of that when I was growing up. I was never taught any of those things. But I did know that this place was uh, started by my great-grandfather. His name was Aurelio Perez. And he came from Mexico with his wife and um, his daughters. They were being born basically along the way <laughs> between Mexico and, and Tucson, where they finally settled. My grandmother was his third oldest uh, daughter. Her name was Juanita. Juanita Perez, and she was born in Bisbee, and she spent some of her early years there, and I think she was probably seven or eight years old, maybe a little older by the time that they came to Tucson, and 
got to um, to this home in the Presidio neighborhood. Nobody knows how he got into this house. <laughs> we don't know how he afforded to pay for it or, you know, what was going on there. Although I have heard rumors that nobody wanted it, <laughs> that it was on, on the, uh, that it was for sale or for rent for a number of years um, without having too many people live in there for very long. So they settled there and... Um, he immediately started doing what he knew how to do, which is to sell tamales and tortillas. <laughs> he was also a door-to-door salesman in a lot of ways. They did have the the grinding machine for corn in the basically their living room of their house that they used as a storefront. But he would also walk the neighborhood and other neighborhoods selling all kinds of things, cigarettes, tortillas, candy, whatever it was. So that's how he made his living. And um, my grandmother and all of her sisters, she had seven sisters, they all grew up in that three-bedroom home, uh, along with having a business in it. (laughs) And obviously that neighborhood changed a great deal, even by the 1950s, it had changed a lot. Um, In the 1950s, my nana's, my grandmother's uh, oldest sister took over the business. Her name was Soledad Perez. And she ran the business for a number of years. She was really well connected to the community. She was one of the first women business owners in Tucson, especially in the 50s. So she had this whole legacy here in Tucson that I didn't really know as a kid growing up. Um, It wasn't really something that was shared with me very often. And there's not a lot of documentation of it, except for maybe a few little newspaper clippings, you know, which I did find in my research. So it turns out that um, there was an announcement in the newspaper when she got married, not for her marriage, but for the fact that El Rapido was closing for a week for her to be married. So they were letting people know you can't go to El Rapido for a week Um, because it was a place where people were going on a regular basis to go and purchase masa, the tortillas, all of those things. Um, She had started to turn it into a, a lunch counter with her husband. She didn't get married until she was 62. Um, But he helped her kind of think about it in a new way. And by that time, it was no longer in the living room of the house. It was um, in what was probably the garage space or maybe even the horse stall of the original Adobe home, which was on Washington. And that's where it remained until, you know, until the end of of El Rapido. So he passed away. Um, My Aunt Soledad ran it for a little while longer before she passed it on to my dad. And the reason that my dad was the right person for that was because he had actually been really close with his grandfather. He did a lot of catering. He watched him work. He watched, you know, that whole process of making tamales. It was not a foreign concept to my father. My father at the time was working in construction and had already experienced some uh, bouts of skin cancer, so he knew he needed to get into a different line of work. And he was super hard worker, and so the right kind of person to run a, a, a food business, because you have to be... You have to have a lot of desire. You have to have a lot of ganas. You have to have a lot of like drive in order to do that kind of work. Um, So he took over in the late 70s and was there most of my life. Um, So I grew up in that kitchen. I started working there from a very young age. I think he gave me duties, you know, by the time I was like five or six years old because I, I would spend time there. My brother and I both. And so we worked making food. We started working more as like the cash register person, you know, greeting people. And then we eventually also helped him cater. So a lot of times my brother, my dad and I, just the three of us would cater like a 200 person wedding. And it was um, it was a lot of work, but it was also 
a really interesting way to grow up. <laughs> you know, like to work a lot as a kid, I think is um, maybe shunned in a lot of ways. Like we want kids to experience play and experience freedom. And, and I think in strange ways, my dad was really able to help us experience that while we were also helping him make some money. <laughs> because we did get to play, you know, we did get to have all kinds of sensory experiences in the kitchen. And in those scenarios where we were watching people get married or celebrate an anniversary or whatever it was, you know, and so with the people that would come in to the store, we were just exposed to all kinds of different um, community members, even if we didn't get to really know them very well because we were kids. You know, it's not like we necessarily had adult conversations with them or got to know their names. Um, they were still like maybe somewhere in our subconscious, just kind of an understanding of the different kinds of people that are around Tucson, you know, the different kinds of people that were working in the downtown area. Uh, it just was a whole lot of exposure that I think a lot of kids, you know, it would be cool if they had that same experience. So um, when I was in college, I was working for my dad and um, the last semester of my undergrad was in uh, the fall of 2000. And I think somewhere around October or so, I decided for the first time to write an essay about my dad's business. <clears throat> it was mostly about him, that essay. Um, and it was also about the machine in the kitchen that was kind of like my dad's primary. He had a lot of tools, right? And actually several machines. But one of the most important ones was the Molino. And it's this big mechanical device that changes corn into masa and it has these it has stones on the inside that are made out of volcanic rock and so it's like this kind of like this strange machine that as a kid it just seemed like such an important thing to me it was fascinating to me as a kid it was something you plug in that has one button on and off that was super loud and it has these volcanic rocks inside and it changes this thing that's, you know, nixtamalization. After nixtamalization, it turns, you know, the, the, the prepared corn into something that looks totally different and something that we make into tortillas and tamales. So I watched this process over and over as a kid, and it didn't dawn on me until I became a writer <laughs> that it might be something special, you know. So I did start to write a little bit about it. It went over pretty well in my class and with my teacher. And at the end of the semester, my uh, instructor, her name is Allison Deming. She's um, been an educator at the Univ University of Arizona for a long time, a really celebrated author too. She asked me to, uh, she asked all the students to read a portion of what they had written over the semester that they were proud of. And I read this um, little thing that I had written and I started crying in the classroom. And it was because uh, a couple of weeks before I had found out that my dad was going to be closing. So the business opened in 1933. And, you know, by that time, it was nearly 70 years old. It had been around all of my all of my consciousness, you know, and suddenly it was going to be gone. And I was really scared for my dad. I didn't know what he was going to do. I didn't know. I didn't even really understand why it was closing. My family didn't talk about it a lot. We were kind of like in a lot of ways, we had expected that it was going to happen. And some people, I think, in my family were happy that it was happening, that it was closing. My dad, by that time, uh, was making very little money. Um, and in the 90s in downtown Tucson, um, a lot of things were closing. Um, it was a period of time in, in downtown Tucson where uh, 
There was kind of a removal of some of the small businesses that had been there. Um, Many of them went to other places, but some of them just never came back or never, you know, reappeared anywhere. So it was a a big period of transition. And of course, part of that whole legacy of gentrification that was happening in in downtown Tucson. So um, I I had a really big emotional response. And I think I kind of freaked out my teachers and my students by crying over over a Molino. (laughs) It was kind of like in that moment, too, I was kind of my emotions were letting myself know, hey, yeah. this is this is a big thing that maybe you want to think about, you know, mm-hmm. writing in a bigger way. Yeah. So over the last, you know, twenty some years, I've been um, working on the story. Sometimes having to put it away for long periods of time because mm-hmm. I was doing other things and you know becoming an artist in other ways and having a family, having kids. Yeah. You know, I had to put it away a lot, but it kept coming back and kept coming back. And uh, especially since. Um, 2015, I really was working on it uh, with much more intention and um, was able to finally put some stories together that that are um, just about ready for publication. Amazing. You know, when I first learned about this, I was invested in the story because it's something that I didn't know about for one. And I would say it's a part of Tucson history. Um, and it covers so many different topics and different things that we we often hear about in the communities. And one of them is what you just mentioned, gentrification. Um, but it's also uh, stories that I've read and heard you tell that I also can relate to as well. And one of them is the, uh, the excerpt that you will read for us here, and it is titled Popovers. And for those who are not familiar with the local tribe here, which I'm also a member of, the Thana Autumn or Desert People. And if you've heard of fry bread, for us Autumn, we are probably the only tribe that calls fry bread popovers because many other tribes all over the United States will say fry bread, but we call them popovers here in uh, southern Arizona. So Mile is now going to read that excerpt titled Popovers. The mission is my favorite place to go to church because our repeated prayers, though clunky and absent-minded, are always sealed with a meal at the fry bread stands. My father calls them popovers. He is often demanding of servers and restaurants, but never with the Tohono O'odham ladies in the front of the mission. The ones who stand all morning long, wrapped in aprons, their hands waving over cauldrons of oil, their palms turning dough over and over. They say Padre Kino was the one to bring the wheat, both a blessing and a curse, to the Indians. Either way, my father couldn't be happier. The expectation of fry bread is one of the only things keeping him from chatting with everyone around him like he usually does in town. In line for popovers, He is more restrained, quieter. For him, this dough bubbling and glistening gold is sanctified. When we bite into the bread, we are baptized by the honey, slithering down our fingers, down to our elbows. Thank you so much for (laughs) reading that. Prior to becoming a writer and going to school for it, would you say that you've always somewhat been a storyteller or did that come later in life? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like 
If I was not a storyteller necessarily as a kid or maybe, you know, until I started studying writing, I certainly was getting trained as a storyteller. My family members are filled with storytellers, you know, primarily my father, but also my grandparents. Um, they just shared so many interesting things with me. They they didn't share the stuff that I wanted to hear. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of questions, especially when I started writing this memoir. I had so many questions. My grandparents were still alive when I started writing it. And I went back and I asked them about some of the specifics and they weren't very forthcoming about a lot of things. Even to this day, my dad can't really explain to me with clarity what happened and why the business closed exactly, you know, especially with memory loss after all these years. It's, but also I think emotional, emotionally he wants to, you know, maybe put that behind him. So the kinds of stories they told were not necessarily all the juicy details that I thought I wanted. They were giving me some gems and I just didn't necessarily experience them that way or I, I didn't recognize them for what they were at the time. And so a lot of the material that I'm pulling from is from their stories. Well, thank you so much, Mele, for taking the time to come here and tell your story, talk about your work, share some personal experiences. But before we end the interview, before we close out, is there any last words that you would like to say? Any special shout outs that you would like to give? Yeah, I want to just do a shout out to all of my Tucson homies, just to say thank you to all the people who are from here that are continuing to work and make this place such an amazing experience, not just for us locals, but for all of our visitors too. And thank you so much to Tina and to all of the people who are doing such amazing storytelling here in Tucson and beyond. You are listening to Cultivating Indigenous Voices, featuring Mele Martinez, hosted and produced by Tina Andrew. To hear more episodes, go to kxci.org. 